This is Radio Orbit, exploring the secrets of everything on KOPN Columbia. Good morning to you. 
Good day to you, wherever you may be, as you're listening to this radio program. This is Mike Hagan, and you're listening to Radio Orbit 1109 on the 30th of January 2006. And it's Mike coming to you every week on Monday nights uh, from 11 until 2. This week, no different. And we've got a little bit of a change of schedule tonight. Uh, Dr. Paul LaViolette coming to us live from his home in New York. And uh, I've actually had a little bit of trouble with the telephone, so I'm going to get him back on the line with us here in a moment. And we'll play some music in just a minute. But uh, we'll be back in just a few with Dr. Paul LaViolette. It's going to be a wonderful program tonight, so stick around. Jesus came walking a little too 
That's cross-eyed with closer to the end. This is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit. I'm having a little bit of difficulty with the phones, and uh, I will have to work that out. So I'm just going to co- sort of continue on with the program here, and we'll deal with that in a minute. But might as well take some time to uh, do things the way we normally do here. Okay. As I said tonight, uh, we're sort of changing the format. We're going to have the interview at the top of the hour, supposedly. Actually, we should be in the middle of it right now with Dr. Paul LaViolette, but we'll get that in just a few minutes. Uh, the music tonight is going to be a collection of stuff that we've featured over the past month or two, independent music from all around the country and all around the world, actually. And as a matter of fact, uh, there's something special about uh, the show tonight, too. Tonight I'm making the show a dedication to my friend Tim Godby, who uh, passed away, moved to the other side on Friday. And he was a close friend of mine. And he died at a young age. He was only 36 years old. And I'm going to be leaving for Denver tomorrow to be with his family and some of my friends uh, back there. So anyway, the show's for Tim tonight. And I had planned to talk a little bit more about it later. But because I can't get Dr. Paul right now, I might as well talk about this for a minute. You know, I have many favorite poems and... uh, and poets, and one of my favorites is a guy who his name his name was Andrew Marvell, or Andrew Marvel. And I'm going to read a poem by Andrew Marvel. It's called "The Fair Singer." For those who are not familiar, he was uh, he was around in the 17th century, 1621. I think he was born and died. I don't know. He wasn't more than 50 or 60 years old when he died. At any rate, this is the Fair Singer, and I'll read it to you here. I'm going to play a little bit of music behind it, I think. This is The Alchemist to The Philosopher's Stone. It's a song by the Wimshurst Machine. You heard a couple weeks ago with Jay Widener when he was on the air. And this poem is called The Fair Singer. Andrew Marvell. To make a final conquest of all me, love did compose so sweet an enemy, in whom both beauties to my death agree, joining themselves in fatal harmony, that while she with her eyes my heart does bind, she with her voice might captivate my mind. I could have fled from one but singly fair, my disentangled soul itself must save, breaking the curled trammels of her hair. But how should I avoid to be her slave whose subtle art invisibly can wreath my fetters of the very air I breathe? It had been easy fighting in some plain where victory might hang in equal choice, but all resistance against her is vain. Who has the advantage 
both of eyes and voice, and all my forces need must be undone, she having gained both the wind and the sun. All right, that's the Wimshurst Machine, and that's a song called The Alchemist, The Philosopher's Stone. All right, this is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit. Well, we'll do space weather and stuff uh, after we eventually get Dr. LaViolette on the phone here and do our interview, but uh, right now let me just say thanks real fast for the emails. Hello to everyone else uh, listening over the web if you're not listening live. Uh, Podcasting, that's happening now, so... Uh, for those of you who are using the podcast, let me know what's happening. Is it working? Are you using it? And uh, a big thanks to Larry, the web wizard, for sure, for getting all this stuff set up. I would have no idea how to do it uh, were it not for Larry, I should say. So anyway, uh, if you're using that stuff and you're interested in it, um, well, cool. Let me know what you think about it, okay? The way to do that is uh, you can always email me at... Orbit Radio, O-R-B-I-T-R-A-D-I-O, Orbit Radio at AOL.com. And if you get on the web, just uh, hop on the Internet and type in Mike Hagan, M-I-K-E-H-A-G-A-N, and you will find many ways to contact me. All right, so if uh, you have ideas for future programs, if you're concerned about uh, things that you heard, if you have questions, whatever, get a hold of me, and I'll get back to you. 
and we can start a conversation. All right. Okay. Uh, let's see. What else are we going to talk about here? Upcoming guests. All right. Next week. Uh, thanks for calling, whoever that is. Uh, upcoming guest next week, John Major Jenkins, the author of uh, a number of books, but uh, Maya Cosmogenesis 2012, of course, the seminal work that he did a number of years ago, probably six, seven, eight years ago now. I'm not sure. But anyway, a stunning book, and we'll talk about that and uh, research and revelations that have occurred since then with John Major, Major Jenkins uh, next week. We've got Joanna Harcourt-Smith, the former Joanna Leary, Timothy Leary's former wife, uh, and my soon-to-be partner uh, with our new endeavor together that's called Future Primitive, and that's still sort of in the works, but uh, Future Primitive is something that you can look forward to uh, soon. And the week after that, I'm not quite sure what we're going to do. I've got uh, Neil Haig, a wonderful artist coming on the uh, 27th of February. And, well, lots of great stuff coming, okay? All right, so let's uh, listen to a little bit more music, and I'll get uh, make another attempt here to get Dr. LaViolette on the phone, and we'll go from there, okay? All right, as I said tonight, uh, as far as music, we're going to be sort of featuring a lot of different stuff that we've played over the last month or two. This is one of my favorite newer bands. They've been on the program a couple times, and I've actually interviewed the guys, Jeff uh, and William. And the band is called Yachai, and this song is called Mama. This is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit. We'll be back in just a few minutes.
All right, this is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit. It is 11.34 p.m. on the 30th of January, 2006. My, how the time flies. The years just roll on by, it seems. At any rate, uh, let's do space weather really quickly here, okay? All right, first of all, there's an amazing video that is uh, up on the website, actually, spaceweather.com. And it has to do with the Stardust capsule. I spoke a little bit about it, uh, about it a couple of weeks ago. Uh, on January 15th, uh, the Stardust capsule uh, re-entered the Earth's atmosphere and uh, landed in the flats of Utah. And, of course, it was filmed. It was filmed by um, an airborne laboratory that's run by NASA called DC-8. Anyway, they recorded this amazing, uh, spectacular video of the re-entry. And if you'd like to see that, hop on the web and go on over to spaceweather.com. And you can see it. It's amazing. Okay? All right. The, uh, when, when, um, it looks like a meteor is what it looks like, like a, like a giant meteor. It's like coming plummeting toward the Earth or whatever. And uh, it, for the empiricists out there, the, the air or the area and the volume around the outside of the capsule reached about 4,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Inside the capsule, of course, were samples of dust that was collected from a comet. Uh, the comet's name was Wild 2, as a matter of fact. And uh, anyway, those samples made it safely to Earth, supposedly or apparently, and they are now in the hands of NASA scientists. Wow, that was a scary thought. So, anyway, uh, the video, though, of the re-entry of this thing is amazing, okay? All right, right now on the sun, there is not much happening. There's a big, long, black gash, if you look at the SOHO uh, imagery right now, and it's a, a filament that's some 200,000 miles long. And I haven't learned a whole lot about uh, this particular type of phenomenon yet, and... Uh, I, I just saw it today, and it's a, it was a picture, actually, that came from a guy named John Stetson. But at any rate, it's this uh, very long and interesting uh, artifact on the sun. And this one appears to be relatively stable for now. Uh, so you can actually see it yourself if you have a small telescope with a red filter on it to look at the sun. So anyway, that, uh, that stuff is all happening in the sky. Uh, let's see, what else do we have to talk about? Space weather. Uh, it was just a new moon just a couple of days ago. So it's very dark out and very clear. Amazing, actually, before I came here tonight. Uh, I stepped outside and turned all the lights off where I live and had an amazing view of the heavens. And Orion just really, really striking right now in the uh, just sort of cruising over in the southern skies. And... Uh, lots of amazing things to look at above. It's amazing how busy the sky is if you actually take the time to look up. And at night you'll see all kinds of stuff happening up there, very little of which is uh, identifiable, as a matter of fact. And so I guess there's lots of uh, UFOs. Of course, most of them are identifiable by some means. But man, I tell you, there's a whole lot of action going on up there. It just, uh, it just uh, takes the time uh, to look. And you'll see all kinds of stuff. 
But anyway, the stars uh, are always there. They've been there for a long, long time. They move this way and that way over time, but they are there. And uh, there's some amazing, amazing things to see right now, tonight, if you go outside. It's such a nice, clear night. And it'll be so, hopefully, uh, for the next couple nights as the moon is still just sort of waxing and uh, not very bright. You'll have great stargazing. All right, on January 31st, that's tomorrow, that is the 35th anniversary of the Apollo 14 launch. That was the third um, the third moon landing that was actually manned. That was the third manned moon landing. That was Apollo 14. That was 35 years ago tomorrow. Also tomorrow, interestingly enough, uh, was the 40th anniversary of Luna 9. And that was the Russian moon lander, or one of the Russian moon landers, that was launched in 1966 on the same day, January 31st. And, of course, uh, the 45th anniversary of the Mercury Redstone launch. That was the one that had Ham the Chimp, the monkey, on board. So, anyway, that's what's happening in the skies above your heads. Let's play a little bit of music and see if we can't get our guests back on the phone here. And come back and talk about some other things if uh, if we're unsuccessful. All right. This is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit. And we will continue with some great music that we've had over the last uh, uh, over the last couple of months or so. And this one is called uh, The Rosetta Stone from Leak. This is Mike. And you're listening to Radio Orbit. We'll be back with Dr. Paul LaViolette.
Rosetta Stone. That's Leak on Radio Orbit. And uh, this is Mike. It's 11.44 and some change on the 30th of January, 2006. And, all right, so here's the deal. I don't know what's going on. I can't get uh, Dr. Paul back on the phone, and I'll do my best as we go along through the night, though. And we'll see if we can't work it out. But, you know, sometimes uh, some things just aren't meant to be. And if that's the case tonight, that will be the case. And we'll come back and we'll do it again with Dr. Paul when we get a chance. But hopefully we can get him on the line here uh, next time we take a break. And we'll see. But in the meantime, I'm not going uh, to sweat it. Okay? All right, we just did space weather. Uh, as I said before, just a phone call away. Area code 573-874-5676. And it's also uh, a place where you get interesting conversation and interviews with people like Dr. Paul LaViolette, who uh, you would never have heard otherwise, and who's probably calling me right now. So let's put a piece of music on the air here. And we'll be back in just a minute.
All right, we're back at you here. This is Mike, and you listen to Radio Orbit. And uh, after much trepidation, we are finally successful. And uh, I got the technological issues resolved, and we will move on with our guest uh, tonight. His name is Dr. Paul LaViolette, and he is the author of a number of books, uh, some of which we've talked about with him before on the air. Uh, the books include Beyond the Big Bang, Earth Under Fire, which of course uh, is available in video as well, Earth Under Fire, and that's a video that uh, coincidentally or otherwise was produced by Jay Widener, uh, who's a, a friend and a, a friend of the program and who was on the air just a couple of weeks ago. But uh, anyway, Dr. LaViolette has uh, a degree in physics from Johns Hopkins, uh, received a Ph.D., and systems theory from Portland State. He uh, is a man uh, whose views are highly sought after in certain circles, and we are very fortunate to have him with us tonight. And so without further ado and delay, we will bring him right on the air now. Uh, so Dr. Paul, thanks for sticking with us and being persistent. Oh, hi. hi, how are you? All right, thanks uh, so much. we got uh, our... Technological issues worked out, and we've got Dr. Paul on the line now. Uh, Paul, you're for, for the listeners. You're on the East Coast. You're in uh, New York somewhere at this point. Yeah, upstate New York. Up, upstate New York. Okay. All right. Well, I tell you what. Twelve. 12 no, it's uh, almost one o'clock. Almost one o'clock. Yeah. So, so, so. Thanks, first of all, for uh, for staying up late into the evening hours and and spending your time with us. And thanks for all the work uh, that you've done, of which we're going to discuss uh, starting right now, okay? Sure. All right, so the last time that you were on the air, we, we talked quite a bit, actually, about um, the, the primary focus of your research, and I'll let you sort of lay it out, but it has to do with, uh, with galactic core explosions, uh, these uh, violent expl uh, explosions that occur at the center of galaxies, and... Uh, your research led you to the ice samples in Antarctica. Maybe, maybe we could start there, and we could talk a little bit about the theory and about what you find, uh, what you found in those ice uh, in those ice core samples. Okay. Yes, I was testing the theory. This was something I was doing for my PhD work in the uh, early '80s, uh, and uh, I had gotten some ice from uh, Greenland and uh, Antarctica, uh, and uh, particularly in Greenland I found uh, high levels of cosmic dust in the Ice Age part of the core, which was uh, confirming my hypothesis, which was that uh, there had been a, a volley of cosmic rays coming from the galactic center around that time and had pushed in cosmic dust into the solar system and caused climatic, uh, a, a climatic mess, so to speak, in the solar system. It filled uh, the area with dust, uh, occluded the sun, so that uh, the radiation reaching the Earth was uh, coming with a different spectrum, much more reddened. Uh, you were getting uh, light scattering. You, you wouldn't have seen the stars uh uh, you would have gotten a lot more radiation actually coming to the Earth. 
but it wouldn't have been visible. Would have been uh, much of it infrared. Uh, it would have created a what I call the interplanetary hothouse effect. And, uh, then on top of that, it would have activated the sun and uh, caused solar flaring almost continually. Uh, ice. Uh, Ice formation of the ice sheets, uh, also ice melting. So there were all various aspects of this. Uh, but one of the key tests was to see if there was elevated levels of cosmic dust in the polar ice cap. How, um, how do you tell if there's cosmic dust? Is there a particular element or something that you're looking for? Yeah. Uh, you look, for example, for iridium. Mm-hmm. Or nickel, and these are very, at very high levels in cosmic dust, uh, but on Earth um, they're much lower. And uh, particularly iridium is a precious metal; it's uh, about ten thousand times more abundant in cosmic material. Hmm. Uh, gold was another one, and I did find gold at fairly high level. Uh, as far as I know, I was the first to detect gold in polar ice. Interesting. What about beryllium? Wasn't that one you were looking for, too? Uh, no. To do that, you need a different uh, technique of analysis. Uh, they find that with mass spectrometers. Hmm. Um, I was using neutron activation, which was where you bombard your sample in a reactor, make it radioactive, and then you measure gamma rays. Hmm. From that, you're That's able right. to tell what's in it. Okay. Whereas uh, beryllium-10, it's a radioactive isotope of beryllium that's created in the atmosphere when the atmosphere is bombarded with cosmic rays. And to separate that particular isotope from the other beryllium isotopes, you need uh, an accelerator. Hmm. So it's a totally different approach. But other people had done that work. Okay. Uh, So I was predicting high levels of that. and. But the other groups had found high levels. Okay. All right. So, so in the ice samples, you you found these elevated levels of. Well, yeah, iridium, nickel. In fact, they were in the ratios that you would ex- well that they see in uh, cosmic material oh. like comet or meteorite material, um, which uh, tends to be very convincing that it was actually extraterrestrial and not contamination. Uh, it's difficult to make a case for contamination because where would the, all this iridium come from? Right, Certainly not from the laboratory. <laughs> right. In other, in other words, there's not, there's not an obvious terrestrial so- source for this stuff. Right. If anything, the labor- if the laboratory dust had contaminated the samples, it would have diluted rather than hmm. created you know, all this iridium. Right, right, right. Okay. The, uh, we also found uh, large amounts of tin in one sample, hmm. uh, which were, was known to be there before because Lonnie Thompson, glaciologist at Ohio State, had found it and was puzzled by w- what was this wow. tin. Um, in fact, uh, it was up to like 70 percent, 60 or 70 percent of it of the sample was tin at one lo- uh, depth. Huh. And uh, wow. I worked with some people in uh, Australia who uh, were just beginning to measure uh, isotopes of tin. And uh, one of the things is if you find an isotopic anomaly in an element, this is another indication that that it could be extraterrestrial Mm. because uh, 
if these tin particles were out in space, they'd get bombarded with uh, cosmic rays and it would change their isotopic ratios compared to what we have on Earth. And, in fact, they did find uh, a significant isotopic anomaly in this uh, tin, Hmm. which was the first time that such a thing had been found. Interesting. And they were were puzzled trying to come up with an answer for it. Uh, Yeah, yeah. Uh, This tin, though, came from a different depth than the area I was testing. I was planning to test uh, the period between 16,000 and 12,000 years ago which was the end of the Ice Age. It was also a time there where we had the worst mass extinction of animals since the time of the dinosaurs, the dying off of the mastodons and mammoths and saber-toothed tigers. So this was the period I was interested in, Mm. but my ice core work ended up testing an earlier period, so I was looking actually at an earlier superwave. All right, well, that was the next question then was... uh once you take the ice core, what are the date, uh, the, the, the time frames that, that, that you're looking at? So we're talking about, what, what did you say, 16,000 years uh, before the present date? So what's that, 14,000 B.C., something like that? Right. Uh, the, uh, the way I had gotten, there was a clue as to where to look. Um, at the time I was doing this, I, I was studying ancient myths and lores, uh, and I discovered there was a very advanced science uh, encoded in in these lores. Right, right, which we've talked about, yeah. And uh, we're talking about a space-age science. Whoever had encoded this stuff was at least as advanced as we are or, or more advanced. Uh, and at the same time, I was studying uh, astronomy because I was working on a new physics theory. So I was studying things like pulsars and pulsating stars and uh, stellar evolution, cosmology, things like this. Right. And uh, having these two tracks of investigation going, uh, one day I was uh, I noticed that, that there was this myth that Sagittarius uh, is shooting at the scorpion. Now, th- these were part of this message that I was deciphering. And uh, so when I laid out this arrow trajectory, as the myth talked about, it uh, came within uh, a few degrees of the galactic center. And then I realized that this was actually pointing, because there was uh, an arrow there, the arrow of Sagittarius. Right, right, the archer. Was uh, actually, it was purposely put there to point out the galactic center. All those stars have moved since the time. This was thousands of years back when these constellations were formed. And right, right, right. And, and maybe you could address it actually for, for a second. And um, uh, Paul, let me add a couple things, actually. First of all, uh, you're listening to Radio Orbit. My guest is Dr. Paul LaViolette. And uh, you can find information about Dr. LaViolette and his ideas and theories and books and papers, published papers that he's uh, done over the years at his website, www.etheric.com. And uh, there is another website that I'll mention now uh, with uh, sort of alternative information, not particularly relevant to the stuff we're talking about right now, uh, but important nonetheless, uh, certainly, and that is archivefreedom.org. 
uh, archivefreedom.org. So both of those websites are uh, ones to put uh, on your list to check out. And uh, Dr. Paul, do you have an 800 number as well that we might give out? Yeah, uh, 1-800-715-9993. 715-9993. Yeah, they, they should be able to take orders to, uh, beginning tomorrow morning uh, from normal daylight hours and early evening. Okay, so uh, so on the web at etheric, E-T-H-E-R-I-C dot com, and an 800 number for books and materials, 1-800-715-9993. Okay, so... Um, so yeah. the so, so the idea of uh, uh, came from this ancient mythology, and I was going to ask you, uh, you know, the idea of the constellations. Where does that come from? The constellations are, are sort of arbitrary. In other words, I can come up with lots of different designs if I stare at the sky. Mm-hmm. So the question becomes, why did the twelve that were eventually uh, chosen as ones that we all know, uh, why were they even chosen to begin with? Yeah, you, this is something that puzzled me a bit, you know, because there's various zodiacs. These are in particular zodiacal constellations. Mm-hmm, right. We have uh, the zodiac that we're familiar with that's in Western astrology. Uh, but then the Mesopotamians actually had, I believe, something like 18 uh, constellations along the zodiac. And then the Chinese, of course, have theirs, their constellations. But the ones that were part of this message that were designed actually as a cryptographic message. They employed certain cryptographic techniques. Was the zodiac that's been handed down to to us presently that involves normal signs of Taurus, Aries, Pisces, and so on. So why it is that the others didn't, uh, you know, I, I'm not saying that all constellations out there are part of a, a message. It just happened that this that Right. I had discovered was, and also it included some constellations off of the ecliptic, uh, which would be include like uh, Sagitta Aquila. Mm-hmm. Uh, Aquila is the eagle and is holding the arrow Sagitta in its claw, and actually a oh, symbol on the, the dollar bill right, uh, right. sort of uh, connotes that. And then there's another constellation at the other side of the uh, in the southern hemisphere called uh, Centaurus and Crucis, which uh, is the cross, Southern mm-hmm. Cross. Actually, Southern they used cross. to be one constellation at one time. And these uh, two constellations, they're on the galactic equator. At particularly important uh, positions, too, correct? Right. Yeah. Um, they're at the one radian points, uh, which uh, by one radian, uh, think of a circle and you take the radius of the circle and you mark it off along the circumference. Mm-hmm. And that angle is uh, equal to one radian. It's about 57.295 degrees. Okay. And so if you take as the center of the circle, like let's say we're looking at the galactic center, and you say that's the a point on the circumference. Right. We're Okay, we're at the center of the circle, and the mm. galactic center is on the circumference. Now you mark off one radian off to the side, and that's where you find uh, Sagitta, the tip of the arrow. So this can't be just coincidence. Right, and that's on that that's on the on the relatively speaking on the north side. If we were looking at if we were observing the galactic center, is that correct? Right. Okay. And then what's on the south side? The 
south side you have Centaurus, and the Southern Cross is right at the Southern Galactic One Radiant Point. Hmm. Okay. The little cross, the the tip of the cross that faces the galactic center is marking that Southern One Radiant Point. Okay. And uh, then you have the other arrow. So you've got two arrows, really. One is the Sagitta, which is flying outward from the galactic center, and the other is Sagittarius, who's aiming his arrow at the mm. galactic center. Okay. And you get the impression, because it uses this metaphoric uh, symbology to communicate its ideas, and you see what it's illustrating is that this arrow really, uh, well, it's, it's indicating an explosion date, and... Um, then the, the Sajita arrow is the result of that explosion that flew out, in other words, the cosmic rays. Hmm. And one radian would be the distance from the galactic center to us. So instead of talking about angles now, we think of it as a distance. Hmm. That's marking the distance from the galactic center to Earth. So metaphorically, they're talking about the results of that explosion actually reach the Earth on that date that they're marking. Hmm. Very interesting. Okay, so all right, we'll, we'll get back to this uh, the, the importance of this radiant idea in a minute, but l let's get back to the explosions itself and the, and, and, and the core samples. Uh, I guess I want to sort of tie that up because appar right. uh, uh, apparently we have as an the accepted yeah, in, in the Antarctic and, and, and in these samples we have as an accepted fact, a scientific fact that this happens, that these are the results of high-intensity periods of cosmic ray incidents, correct? Right, the beryllium-10 graphs that indicate cosmic ray intensity uh, striking the Earth's atmosphere. And we see peaks, and there's a set of peaks right at that time hmm. when the, the message is indicating something was happening. Uh, and previous times, there's one very large cosmic ray peak around 37,000 years ago which was the time of the extinction of uh, Neanderthal, yeah. which is interesting. Interesting. And also the time of the rise of, of, of the next uh, version. Right, the Cro-Magnon. Uh, well, they supposedly dated back earlier, but they gained more of the... Dominance or whatever. Dominance, yeah. Right. yeah they, 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 for whatever reason, didn't die off, yeah. And you, you see in the myths, like the... the Hopi and the Mayan myths and so on, and other myths from all over the world. They talk about different ages and different races that existed that became extinct, extinct uh, at certain times. And uh, so this could be, for example, a reference to one of the uh, species that once existed on the planet. Yeah, and they reference different suns in many cases. They talk right. about the fourth sun, the fifth sun, this sort of thing. And when you look at the uh, ice core record, you see that the times of the terminations of ice ages, like not only the, the previous ice age, but the one before that, coincided with these huge peaks of cosmic rays hmm. and the beginnings of the ice ages. So we had an interglacial period of something like uh, nine to 11,000 years between those two last ice ages, and suddenly... Uh, there was another peak of cosmic rays, and glaciation began. Hmm. So these appear to be climatic triggers. Yeah, but not necessarily a trigger for either or. It can be a trigger for uh, maybe, a, maybe a warming cycle or a cooling cycle, apparently. 
Yeah, and I think part of it has to do with how long the uh, superwave lasts. Hmm. So if it's a shorter superwave, more moderate, uh, let's say it might last up from 100 to 1,000 years and be a moderate peak that is able to push cosmic dust into the solar system, that could create conditions that would foster glacial growth. Hmm. And it would also have to do with the phase of the Earth's precessional cycle. Uh, but then if it was one that lasted longer uh, to the point that the sun began to become active, then uh, the sun would heat up and you'd have a glacial uh, recession phase. So if the ice sheets were already there, they would melt. Uh, so that requires a more extended event. Uh, In other words, it takes longer to push material, et cetera, et cetera, through the solar wind it's, uh, where it can actually have a significant effect on our star? Well, it, it, well, it, it pushes it through the uh, solar wind in e either case. Mm -hmm. But it hangs around. If it hangs around long enough, uh, then the sun is going to heat up, is going to get disturbed. Does it add mass to the sun, Paul? Oh, yeah. Okay. So this stuff falls on the sun, and uh, there is a correlation between the rate of matter input to the sun right. and the level of solar flare activity. Hmm. Okay. Studies okay. on this. Mm -hmm. um, but you wanted to talk about that evidence also in the uh, bird core, right, That um, where they found a spike of acidic material. Oh, yeah. And yeah. it dated 15,800 years. Uh, the, the, well, actually, the original discoverers had dated it around 17,500 years old, but when you do a proper uh, dating of the core, you come up with a more recent date, 15,800 years, which is the date that the zodiac is indicating. That's when the arrow indicator lines up mm. exactly with the heart of the scorpion, right. as the myth uh, talks about. And, and uh, for... For listeners who aren't um, familiar with uh, astronomical software and this sort of thing, how is it that we know the way things looked 15,000 years ago, etc.? Uh, maybe you could explain real qu really quickly how we know the positions of stars, constellations, either uh, ah, yeah. in the past or in the future. Uh, well, today we observe that the stars' position change very slowly uh, each year. And uh, it's called proper motion. Mm -hmm. And each star has not only its position in the sky, uh, right ascension, declination, but uh, the, the rate at which those coordinates change. And knowing that, you can uh, project back where that star would have been so many thousands of years ago. Because that's a very constant rate of change. Right. And uh, so you can take any constellation map and project it back. In fact, there are programs that do this. Yeah, okay. uh, I was doing this, but with um, uh, calculations were more accurate than what you get in your typical program, which is just basically to get an idea mm -hmm, of mm -hmm. what, what these would look like. Right. In fact, uh, I also had to perform what's called cartographic corrections because you're dealing with um, Mercator projections, mm -hmm. and that when you map those out, it's not exactly the way it would look in the sky, so you have to make corrections. Mm. 
Yeah, and for and and for people uh, out there listening, uh, Dr. Laviolette received his PhD. This was was uh, was your thesis, as a matter of fact. Is that correct? Yes, uh, except for the uh, the message part. Mm. I didn't put in about the right, 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 how right. I got the idea. Right, right. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, they they'd have thrown you out of the place, you know. I did uh, write it up actually as a pre-proposal which was between me and my dissertation chairman. Hmm, interesting. But the dean wouldn't have approved that sort yeah. of thing. You have to understand, uh, the only reason I could have done this investigation for a Ph.D. was I had a very open-minded uh, dissertation committee chairman, Dr. Hmm. Landeris, and the program was an interdisciplinary program, which uh, one of its objectives was to solve problems uh, taking an interdisciplinary approach, bringing many fields or, or disciplines to bear on the problem. Wow, what an idea. So think of uh, CSI. Hmm. It's exactly what you have here. You, you know, the, the TV program. Yes. Uh, you're dealing with a crime scene. In other words, the crime occurred at some time in the past, hmm. and here's the evidence here hmm. and there, and it's, it's uh, sort of tucked away in different disciplines. Right, right, right. <clears throat> But uh, the, the scientists don't communicate with each other because they're specialized. Right. So nobody solves the crime. <laughs> right. But a, a system scientist comes in, and their purpose is to cross the disciplines. Mm. They're sort of generalists and bring all the data needed together. And then you see the pattern emerges and becomes obvious what right. happened. Right. Well, your work has been, has been stunning uh, as a layman, you know, and for many others like me, I can certainly say that, that... Uh, uh, it it was stunning and striking, and you know some some things just sort of uh, once they become apparent. Quite honestly, Dr. Paul, and I think this, I, and I think you make this very clear, that one of the reasons that they're encoded the way they are, and one of the reasons that they're passed along the way they are, is that once that they're shown, you don't have to be a PhD genius like yourself uh, to figure it out. It becomes something that's even available to the common guy. Uh, who doesn't have the advanced training of someone like you. Mm. Yeah, in my book, I try to put as much of the facts out there so people can come to their own conclusions about this. Because uh, I don't want people just to take my word. Mm. Now, this, this whole thing is so fantastic uh, or mind-altering that you really need to give the evidence to the people reading the book to make their own decisions. You know. Well, the first thing is that... Uh, is that it is an accepted uh, fact. Now, we know that these core explosions happen, or we know that these cosmic ray uh, volleys happen. I guess, I guess it's sort of induction to say that it's the core explosion, but I'm, but I'm sure that you can uh, argue that. We, uh, we see it happening in another galaxy. Right, right. So we, we, we see it happening. Quasar, for example, is an example of a very intense explosion mm. of this. Mm. Right, again, perfectly well-documented cosmic phenomenon that, that, that does this sort of thing. Uh, so we know it happens. Give us an idea of, of, the, uh, of the frequency. It looks like you've looked pretty seriously at the core samples. What do you, I, I think that you have an idea of how many years, plus or minus? Plus or minus for what? Well, what's the frequency of these outbursts? Uh, uh, the large ones occur about every 13,000 to 26,000 years. Okay, so there's quite so there's quite a, a large window there. Uh, yeah, to 
to grapple with this problem of frequency, I I developed a magnitude scale like mm. you have for earthquakes or tornadoes. Right. Uh, so I, I've broken it into four magnitudes. And again, all these are based on uh, samples that were taken from the ice course. Is that correct? To a large extent. To yeah. a large extent. Okay. Uh, the mag uh, magnitude one would be the weakest, magnitude four the strongest, and maybe in the future that could make some changes to the scale. <laughs> right, like the, like the hurricanes we have these days, that they may have to up the scale, you know. Right, and uh, so magnitude one would be a super wave that you you didn't see evidence of it in the uh, beryllium ten record of the ice core, so it wasn't strong enough to poke its head above the background. Okay but it was still something that occurs, and we have evidence that there were something like 14 of such events in the last uh, 5,300 years hmm. uh, from looking at the galactic center. You see these puffs of gas that have come out from the galactic center. Okay. Uh, and the last one of these th sorts occurred 700 years ago, and there have been only a few out of these 14 that have gone longer than 700 years. So... Uh, Hmm. You know, we may be uh, imminent for another one of these small, at least of the small ones. Then the magnitude two would be larger ones that you actually see them as spikes in the record, but they're not strong enough to make a climatic change. So you'd see the cosmic ray peaks, but they'd be so brief that uh, there wasn't a major change, like in initiating an ice age or terminating. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, but they could cause some temporary climatic uh, blizzards, things like this. There was one like this 5,300 years ago, uh, around the time of the beginning of the Mayan calendar. Hmm. Then uh, magnitude 3 would be a longer-duration superwave, one that would last from a few hundred to a thousand years. Okay and be more intense. Uh, maybe it would double the background level of a cosmic ray background level. And uh, that would be strong enough to initiate an ice age. It would push in enough dust to do that kind of thing. And then magnitude 4 would be even stronger, maybe 2 to 4 fold above background, mm -hmm. uh, last several thousand years. And that would... Uh, be enough to activate to the, the sun to the point that it would become like a T-Tauri star. Uh, a lot of flaring, you would have a coronal mass ejections hitting the Earth uh, and would actually warm the climate to the point where you get uh, rapid melting of the ice sheets, uh, continental flooding uh, due to the ice melting, this sort of thing. Hmm. So let me ask you a question about the, the the rapidity of onset of this sort of thing. When, uh, first of all, when the volley, the increase in cosmic rays reaches us here at Earth, that means that the explosion occurred twenty three thousand years ago. Something like that. Yeah. Something like that. But we didn't it coming because the cosmic rays travel as fast as light from the initial outburst. Okay. Uh, so by the time you see it... Then it's on your doorstep. <laughs> Great. Unless unless there was a build-up. Let's say there was mm. uh, some mm. rumblings of the galactic center that was 
setting out some warning signals. Right, which sort of makes sense. I mean, if you look at the sun, I sort of look at the whole thing as like uh, fractal, uh, you know, self-similar things, just scale being the only thing that's different. And, and the sun certainly goes through cycles, and when it has certain um, uh, signatures that you see in its magnetic fields and uh, uh, et cetera, you know, you can sort of go, oh, man, it, it might be coming. You know, we know when M-class and X-class flares are uh, uh, have high potential, and we also know when they're when they're when they're a low potential for them. You know, but it looks like these things can have onsets within a matter of a decade, at least, just looking at the ice core record, hmm. uh, which is pretty quick in really terms quick. of uh, geological time. Uh, but it could be much faster than that. I mean, it could be overnight. Uh, it's just that we don't have any way of knowing from the records that they, they're not. High enough resolution. Hmm. You know, th- there are strange, unexplained uh, occurrences too in in uh, archaeolog in the archaeological records. You know, I I've I've always wondered what happened that could have frozen mammoths, uh, mastodons, etc. With you know that still had buttercups in their mouths, you know, and have been found um, basically flash-frozen or something is what it appears. I mean, I, I mean that's what it appears. So, yeah, I mean, there are still lots of questions as to... There's certainly some strange things that have happened that we can't quite explain yet. Yes. All right, well, okay, so we know that the stuff happens... Uh, we have an idea about the frequency, and apparently it, it, it's just like you say, it's, it's not now and then, it's, it's just different levels of frequency over time, and there are probably cycles within cycles that we may or may not yet be aware of. And these small ones would be very devastating for uh, us sociologically uh, as modern technological society that depends on satellites huh. or cell phones and television communications and so on um, yeah I mean it would be wiped out by, yeah. uh, by electromagnetic pulse from this sort of a event um, there would also be a gravity wave component uh, the tsunami which uh, on my uh, website uh, there's a web page that talks about the tsunami right right uh, and, and I show that there was a a very strong gamma ray burst uh, within uh, less than two days after it arrived, uh, which is the, right. the sequence you'd expect. You expect first the earthquake, which would be triggered by the, by the gravity, gravity wave, wave, right? And then would arrive the gamma ray burst, and that's exactly what you found. And, and both of those events were first class uh, in the in their in the period of the last 30 years, there was nothing to compare with those two events, and they occurred so close together. Uh, well, the magnitude one superwave would um, be much more powerful than that tsunami. Hmm. Wow. Uh, that, that was created, uh, they found that that gamma ray burst came from a, uh, a star, not from a galactic core. That was a star within our galaxy. Uh, close to the center of the galaxy. Hmm. But a core explosion, we're talking on a bigger scale. Right, it's like a, like multiplied many-fold. So 
you know, it, it, all these things, uh, it, without even creating climatic uh, problems, you'd still have some major disasters from such an event. Right, even, even, even at the lowest level. Right. Even at the lowest level. Hmm, amazing. All right, so um, let's talk a little bit about what the, what, what the effects then would be. We have uh, tectonic event, uh, effects, obviously. Uh, you know, besides the earthquakes, you have um, EMP. Uh, mm. This is caused by the gamma ray burst. Uh, when it strikes the atmosphere, it uh, will create an electromagnetic wave front, which um, would uh, overload power lines, create blackouts. On and that's what fries all the satellites and all that. Right, that would fry your satellites. Um, the blackouts we've experienced are nothing compared to what would happen during such an event. These uh, would blow transformers all over the continent. <laughs> so literally it would be lights out pretty much. Yeah, it, let's put it this way. There would be a lot of work for the repairmen to do. <laughs> you have to figure for a month you might not have electricity. Um, the thing is we have not gone through this right. in uh, recorded, uh, well, in historical times, uh, I mean, even 700 years ago, we you see the thing is we didn't have technology as we have it. Electricity, yeah, right. using electrical devices and so mm. on. We didn't have things that could get blown out by uh, electromagnetic pulse coming through the, your lines and frying your chips. Mm. Cars now they have chips in them, right. which uh, probably wouldn't be able to start your car if mm. such a thing happened. Uh, so. So we're, we're affected in a different way than we would have uh, 700 years ago. Hmm. Amazing. Yeah, it, it, it's certainly interesting how dependent upon the technology we have become. I mean, even, uh, uh, you know, as a, as a real personal example, I mean, the fact that you and me even uh, are communicating, you know, hmm. uh, is all because of these wires and chips and transistors and and all of these things that are very fragile, apparently. And that uh, tsunami gamma ray burst came pretty close. It did uh, disturb some of the satellites, as you remember. Mm, I know. And it and and that earth that that, that earthquake uh, was a significant significant event geologically speaking. There were many stories that came out uh, over the last you know year or so since it happened about about. What a significant event it really was, geologically speaking. Yeah. You know, the gamma ray bursts happen all the time. Ever since, uh, ever since you and I have become uh, familiar with one another, and I've gotten more interested in your work, and uh, I have a very close friend who runs a, a website called CyberspaceOrbit.com, and his name is Kent Stedman, and he's a fan of your work, and he uh, watches the gamma ray bursts. There are a couple of different universities that uh, that sort of watch the, watch that stuff and they post all of the uh, gamma ray bursts as they occur or as they're identified and they seem they seem to be they seem to happen really often Paul like they're uh, I don't know the average is close to one a day actually that, that, yeah. that gets posted up there yeah well uh, these are occurring all over the universe and reaching us um, the ones that occur within our galaxy are very rare, like that one that did occur within our galaxy. We've got this tsunami occurring uh, hmm. right 
near it. Um, but uh, you know, these smaller ones, these everyday ones, are not what should worry us. It's the more rare events, and and they take you by surprise, unfortunately. Yeah. Again, it seems that they're difficult to predict. With I mean, outside of just a very short uh, opportunity, maybe. Did you have some questions on gamma ray bursts that uh, yeah. come in? Uh, yeah, as a matter of fact, um, I did. There were a couple uh, uh, interesting ones, as a matter of fact. Um, the first one you sort of addressed already. Uh, a, a, a listener asked, please ask Dr. LaViolette how one can locate the origin of a gamma ray burst. Mm. In, in addition, how can one determine whether it sources from within our galaxy or outside of our galaxy? Well, uh, there's several gamma ray detector satellites up there. Uh, so depending on when each satellite first picks up the burst, they can sort of triangulate hmm. uh, and find out where it came from, and where in the sky it originated from. So if you think of, uh, let's say, three satellites, one is at your left hand, the other at your right hand, the other in front of you, okay. If the burst had come from the left, from your left, it's going to reach your left satellite first, and then the middle one, and, the middle and one. finally the right one. Mm -hmm. So you put that in your computer, and the computer will triangulate, say, okay, it's from over there. If it arrives simultaneously on all three, you'd know it probably came from above. Mm. So Interesting. that's essentially what they do. And, um, and then once they get a, a general target area to look at, they train their telescopes, and that was the idea of the swift gamma ray right, right. satellite was it could inform them quickly uh, with its network of telescopes where to look. And so within seconds, uh, they would be notified, their buzzers would go off, and they'd run to the telescopes and give the coordinates and then look, and they would hopefully see the dying optical counterpart and be able to see what was the source and hopefully see that there was a galaxy or something there. Hmm. Once they see a galaxy, then they can look at the redshift of the galaxy, and that tells them how far away it came from. Okay. Or if it came from within our own. Um, are there occurrences where, the, where, where it comes from other places? For example, it doesn't come from a galaxy, or, they, or, they're, or they're not sure of the source. Um... I don't know. Uh, maybe there are a few that, that they well, few that they don't know. They haven't been able to see the galaxy. Maybe it's so far away. You know? Okay. In, a, in, a, in other words, it, it, it's it's typical. In other words, that these that we do know the sources of these things, and that they come primarily from star explosions or from galactic explosions. Well, uh, they divide them into short bursts and long bursts. Right. Long bursts, they find, correlate with supernova explosions in the distant galaxy. Whereas the short bursts, they don't see any supernova explosions. So there they're left to wonder what caused it, and they've come up with a theory that maybe it's two neutron stars in a binary neutron star system that collide the and when they fuse, that that moment it creates this explosion okay. that's uh, very powerful and very short, uh, much quicker than a supernova mm -hmm. because a supernova takes time to expand, mm -hmm. so it, it can last 
much longer, have its gamma ray bursts last much longer. Yeah, interestingly, there have been a couple of gamma ray bursts just over the last week or so that uh, you and I were chatting about off the air that were very long. One was like 700 seconds, I think, in duration. The other one was 900 seconds, which I think is the longest one, or at least one of the longest that's on record. Right. So what does that mean exactly? Supernova explosion. Really? So could those particularly have any effect? or? Uh, I, mean, we I don't would, think we, 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 you know, we that know they were that strong, I mean, compared to the one that was occurring in December of 2004. And again, we're sort of doing the recap now. We would know already, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah. Now, one thing that worries me is that uh, they might, if a real strong one occurred, that they might keep it to themselves. That's exactly mm. what they did last time. They, mm. they didn't inform us about it until a month and a half later. That's right. It was the middle of February. Right. Uh, now, we've got to uh, inform people, get this out in the news as soon as it occurs. Uh, there's a book by Fred Hoyle and his son called Inferno, which is a science fiction story about what might happen if there was a very strong galactic core explosion. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were proposing one that was so strong that they had to head up towards the Arctic Circle to to get away from the radiation. <laughs> but uh, in that story, which sounds quite realistic, the astronomers were mulling over what this was, and they didn't announce it for a long time. <laughs> you know, it's very realistic, actually. Uh, we've got to get away from that. We have to have some sort of warning system to get the word out when these things happen. Yeah, it is really strange that, that, that there's uh, a demonstrated historical... Uh, you know, precedent for basically trying to keep the stuff quiet as opposed to to uh, to trying to proliferate the information. I mean, I guess that uh, that those become cultural and uh, psychological issues, which are certainly uh, we have our uh, our issues right now culturally that we need to. Uh, but if there's a <clears throat> we can take as a precedent the uh, tsunami. Uh, it looks like the earthquakes would be the first signal. Hmm. And then would come the gamma ray right. uh, event. <clears throat> All right. So, <sighs> were there any other uh, questions? Yeah. Well, uh, <clears throat> let me. I, I'm I'm going to go on a on on a, on a out on a limb and and mention this one only because it sort of struck me and you know I don't know so I'm just going to see what your take is and if you, if you tell me just to forget it then I'll forget it. <clears throat> um, this guy says, taking into consideration quantum space, space-time, non-locality, and gamma-ray bursts, is it possible that GRBs are thin places in space-time, and is distance really a factor? Now, what do you think he means by thin places? Well, I think he... I don't know. Maybe where, maybe, maybe places where... Uh, where the veil is, uh, where is thin, and 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 maybe something is peeking through from another, I don't know, dimension or something. The reason I think that he mentions this, and I've had a conversation with this guy about it, he's been sort of following gamma ray bursts, and he seems to think that there are simultaneous things that happen, like you're talking about. But he he seems to think that 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 maybe there's a uh, a non-local um, reaction that happens when one of these things occurs 
that sort of lights up a whole bunch of stuff, like a Christmas tree almost, and that regardless of distance or time in between, um, the gamma ray burst can have an immediate and literally instantaneous effect on different celestial bodies, maybe stars, maybe even our sun. Does that even hold any water? Well, with the one that occurred uh, in 2004, they talked about it uh, reflecting off the moon. Maybe that, <laughs> you think that's where you get the idea from? I'm not sure, and that, that really confuses me. <laughs> well, if you imagine, suppose the moon was uh, off to one side, but in the direction of where this gamma ray burst had come from, right? Okay. Um, <clears throat> it would have scattered from its surface at a very low angle towards us. So it would have, in effect, reflected then hmm. off the moon. Interesting. Because so, gamma rays reflect off of oh, uh, solid objects. Solid objects just like light. As long as the uh, angle is a low angle. Hmm. Wow. Well. But uh, I, I'm not a believer in Einsteinian space-time. Uh, you, you can gather that from reading my book, uh, hmm. Genesis of the Cosmos. No question about it. Well, and there and there are, there are questions actually from listeners that are that are relative to that. That um, uh, I think all of this stuff is 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 relevant to the galactic core explosion. So maybe we could talk about subquantum uh, subquantum kinetics just for a minute. And um, because uh, there's a question right here about about the Big Bang. Mm -hmm. uh, a listener asks, uh, "What's the best evidence, in your opinion?" Uh, refuting the Big Bang, and, and, and there are a couple of related questions that I have, uh, but anyway, maybe, maybe you could talk about that a little bit, the whole idea of the Big Bang and the expanding universe and all that. Well, actually, uh, I have a DVD available of one of my lectures about this. Uh, it's called Is the Universe Really Expanding? And I go into the cosmology of the Big Bang and point out a lot of the difficulties. Um there was actually a published paper, I might add, uh, with yeah. the same title. Is that right? Yes. Uh, I published in Astrophysical Journal in 1986, and it's available on my website. People can download it. Uh, be prepared. It's a bit technical, <laughs> but at least the graphs, uh, uh, you can see from the graphs, uh, it's the taking data that's been published and giving a fair play to the alternative to the Big Bang, which is the tired light theory. Mm. The idea that the universe is not expanding, but that the redshift is due to something else. It's due to light losing energies that travels through space. And this is a, a cosmology that often is not plotted on the data. So it's sort of like, uh, think of cosmology as a religion, and they only toot their own horn, Big Bang theory. Uh, unfortunately, and what they should be doing is being interested in science and putting the alternative theories on to see which fits better. And what you do when you do this, um, these tests, you find that consistently the tired light model fits the data better with the fewest assumptions. And that, uh, that emerges when you do many tests, many different kinds of cosmology tests. Because in the past, Big Bang theorists have been um, adjusting their data mm. so 
so it would fit the model. And they call these uh, evolutionary corrections. But when you make these corrections on one test, usually your fit goes off on the other on test. On the other test, right, right. So this is sort of like a Chinese handcuff when you use more than one test. Right. And uh, I've uh, updated that paper in subquantum kinetics, the book subquantum kinetics. Let me mention real fast uh, the website and, again, the 800 number. Um, my guest is Dr. Paul LaViolette, and if you haven't figured it out yet, he is uh, well worth listening to, and his research is worth looking into, and his books are well worth reading. And much of this information can be uh, investigated at www.etheric.com, etheric.com, and there is an 800 number where his uh, books and materials are available, and that's 1-800-715-9993. And, of course, uh, Dr. Paul's uh, website and materials are also uh, linked over at my website at mikehagan.com as well. And, um, all right, well, let, let, uh, let, let's continue with that. Let me Paul. just point out the genesis of a cosmos, mm. uh, the book which also talks about ancient myth. Right. Um, a large part of the book is about uh, cosmology and talks discusses this stationary universe cosmology and these tests uh, more for the layman. So if, if you're not too technically oriented, um, this book could explain fairly well uh, this evidence against the Big Bang Theory. Uh, if you want something more technical that you can... Uh, Take to your professor at the university and say, "Well, here's the evidence. Just read it." Uh, that would be subquantum kinetics. Right, right, right. And uh, if, if you want to uh, crusade on this, get your <laughs> local university library to carry it, so we get the book out there. In fact, I was contacted wow. by one lady who uh, feels that subquantum kinetics will be the science of the future after the next cut. Cataclysm. Well, I'll tell you what, Paul. Um, a couple of things. You know, I'm in Columbia, Missouri, and you're familiar with Columbia because I know that some of the uh, analysis of uh, some of the core samples that you worked on were done here at the reactor at the University of Missouri. Right. I sent the samples there to be irradiated because your reactor was one of the more high-power reactors in the U.S., and you needed very high power to uh, do this uh, iridium analysis. Uh, this was uh, neutron activation analysis I was doing was the same uh, procedure that was done to in the discovery of the extinction of the dinosaurs, where they uh, concluded there was a comet that had hit the Earth or an asteroid, right. and they found a lot of iridium. So I was right, right, right. <laughs> I'd, I'd read their their paper and decided to use the same technique. I see. Uh, on core samples, although this was new, what I was doing, because it had never been tried before on ice, uh, where you're dealing with milligrams of material instead of grams. You know. mm -hmm. Amazing. Well, uh, there's another thing that I'll mention with regard to the university. I, I actually have a contact in, uh, in, the, in the physics library here, and it's a real interesting story that... that, that sort of came about uh, over the last year uh, because I was given a book by uh, by Tom Bearden, Dr. Tom Bearden, uh, 
mm. who I'm sure you're probably familiar with. Yes. Anyway, um, he asked me if I if I would try. I mean, it's a long story, but it, to make it short, he asked me if I would try to get his book uh, in the physics library here, mm-hmm. and I did. Uh, and I and I have a contact there. So please, uh, we'll talk off the air about this. But uh, if it's not in the library here yet, uh, there's certainly a good chance that we can get it in the library here at the University of Missouri. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So, okay. Um, and yeah, the the fantastic stuff. All of Dr. Laviolette's books. Uh, I've read them all. I've read every one of them. And I just finished uh, Talk of the Galaxy, uh, one that we'll talk about here hopefully in uh, in, in a short time. Uh, but it's another amazing book, and it ties some of these things together with uh, with astonishing sort of conclusions. But um, at any rate, we have a situation. Uh, we certainly have a situation of these things occurring. They happen all the time. We talk about gamma ray bursts now. We've talked about galactic core explosions. We know they have an effect on the planet. Again, um, uh, this is not speculation. So... Uh, the question becomes time frame, like we've talked about a little bit, and then, uh, you know, the level of, of what, what might occur. And like you say, I mean, even these lower level occurrences are uh, to a civilization that relies on electronics and technology the way we do. It's probably uh, a, a real a real bump in the road. Yeah, no, I was on the Coast to Coast show uh, the end of uh, end last of the, month. End of December, yeah, yeah, and, fantastic uh, show. Got quite a few questions. Some people were concerned. You know, should they be building uh, fallout shelters? Right, and how much uh, dirt would take to stop this, and so on. So to um, to alleviate some of the fears, I put on my website some answers to these questions. Which, you, if you go to the bottom, there's a link uh, where it talks about questions and answers. Um, and uh, Basically, from looking at the past record, I don't think you have to be worried to that extent. Uh, that these small events, uh, as far as the gamma ray burst, if you just stay indoors, mm-hmm. uh, it will stop the electron shower, which will be more or less low-energy electrons, because uh, electrons, it's hard for them to penetrate the atmosphere because they're so, such light particles. Mm-hmm. If it was protons, that's a different story. Yeah, a little bit more mass, yeah. Right. Uh, but uh, you wonder, you know, about these stories of uh, secret government projects building uh, tunnels underground. Mm. Yeah, it makes you <laughs> worried. You know, do do they know something that we they haven't told us? Oh yeah, I mean, there's and, and there is a again, there's a tremendous amount of documented evidence now that there's lots and lots of stuff that's going on underground, uh, not only in this country. <laughs> so, but one thing that puzzled me is about the super collider tunnel in Texas. Hmm. It seems so ridiculous to be building this huge tunnel for uh, you know, spending so much money. And then once they had it built, suddenly the project was killed. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, so now they've got a huge underground complex. Hmm. How convenient. All paid for, you know, and hmm. built. Yeah, there have, been, there have been a number of projects over the years that have really uh, piqued my interest. The, the Denver airport was one that I was really interested in. I was living in Denver for a long, long time, and right. man, that's a real, real questionable deal. What's going on under there? Yeah, I heard the story from Jay Widener. Man, I was man, going out there t- 
to work with him on the video. Right, right. You guys did a wonderful video, by the way. And Jay's a friend of mine, and he's great. And uh, he is a, uh, a really interesting guy uh, who has his own ideas of uh, some things that are happening. And, and, and your work is quite uh, central in, uh, in some of Jay's ideas. So. Yeah, Earth Under Fire, that's the name, uh, actually, I think that's the, uh, of course, that's the name of the book, but also the video, is that right? Mm-hmm, yes. Well, is that available as well at, uh, on the yes, website? Yes, yes, we have copies of that in DVD. Okay, all right. I think we have one VHS left. Okay. All right, well, I'll tell you what, um, we've been on the air for a long time without taking a break. Why don't we take a little break? Can you stick around for just a little while longer and we can talk about... Uh, some of these signposts that uh, that are in sure. the sky. All right, let's do that. We will take a break, and we'll be back in just a moment with my guest, Dr. Paul LaViolette. And as I've said uh, a couple of times tonight, you can find out information about Dr. LaViolette at www.etheric.com. There is another website called Archive Freedom, just the way it sounds, archivefreedom.org archivefreedom.org and that's an important website as well put it in your bookmarks and all of these uh, websites that I'm talking about right now can be uh, easily gotten to through my website uh, at mikehagan.com alright okay so uh, Dr. Paul back in just a few minutes we'll listen to uh, a little bit of music from C3 who we featured on the program just a couple of weeks ago and this is from uh, version 8 set 2 I'm not sure where that was. Was that at Ragtag? I want to say it was at Ragtag. Uh, at any rate, this is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit. We'll be back in just a minute with Dr. Paul LaViolette. Thank you. 
killer stuff there from C3. And uh, if you're interested in music from C3, you can go to MikeHagan.com and click on the Music tab. And go look back a couple of weeks and you'll find uh, more from the Conspiracy Convergence Collective or something like that. All right. Uh, it is... See you, Jeff. Thanks. Uh, it is 1 o'clock in the morning, Central Daylight Time, on the 31st of January. This is Mike Hagan, and you're listening to Radio Orbit. And my guest is Dr. Paul LaViolette. He requires no further introduction. Uh, get on the web and go check him out at www.etheric.com or uh, just go to my website at mikehagan.com, and you can link right over there to Dr. Paul's sites. And... Um, uh, uh, a big thank you to Dr. Paul for sticking around. He's on the East Coast, and it's already 2 o'clock in the morning there. And we had a little difficulty early on getting the phone situation worked out. Uh, but uh, he's here with us, and we appreciate it. So, hey, Paul, um, before the uh, before the break, I mentioned Archive Freedom, and I think uh, I think it, we, we, it's a good time to mention that uh, because it is, it's, it's a really important project, and... Uh, one that you're directly involved with and, and sort of the founder of, I guess. But uh, maybe you could tell people a little bit about Archive Freedom for those who don't know, and uh, um, we can inform them a little bit. Yeah, it's a collaboration of physicists. Um, we've we, uh, Most of us haven't met except through the Internet and telephone calls. Uh, we're protesting the policy of the uh, Cornell... University Internet Archive, which used to be at Los Alamos Laboratory, and they moved it to Cornell because uh, Dr. Paul Ginsberg, who founded it, went mm-hmm. to Cornell. Uh, it's become sort of the the Internet of the physics community for posting papers. Peer review, all this sort of thing. Even uh, papers that haven't been yet submitted to journals <clears throat> will be posted there. And the, the, the rationale is that it takes so long for a paper to get reviewed. Uh, um, they why wait? And you know, you can communicate to your peers by posting there. Right. right. I mean, it in seems that process. Yeah, the web the web seems like a natural uh, uh, a natural venue to exchange and uh, debate and converse about that sort of information. Right, and it appears that in the past years that. Uh, the archive has been blacklisting people uh, and preventing them from posting their papers, uh, not because of the papers, but because they somehow decided that uh, they didn't like the particular theories that the, the people had. So even though the papers, uh, in some cases, they, they've already been published in peer-reviewed journals, the, the people are prevented from posting. And, uh, in fact, uh, we even have a Nobel laureate among us, uh, whose uh, papers are restricted to a particular category. He's not allowed to post them in the, the proper category for his papers. Who, who, who is, is that Brian Josephson? Yes. Yes, yes. And he's written some articles to Nature magazine uh, oh. about this, which were published. Um, so we are urging people to visit the website, read our stories, which are posted there in the case history section, and uh, to write to your congressman, 
uh, senators, representatives, uh, also the uh, House committee uh, and Senate committee that deals with science and technology. Mm. And uh, we have a sample uh, letter uh, that people can download, and you could modify it uh, if you like, that you could use uh, to send your comments in. And it's better by mail because... Uh, uh, with the problem of spam, a lot of the senators and representatives prefer actual hard copy mail. That's true. I've, I've found that as well. So if enough people start writing, think of this, you could actually change the future course of, of science. Yeah, and this is no small thing because um, there are advances and discoveries and... Uh, uh, remarkable things that, that that are coming now, fast and furious, and um, many of them could be, at least it seems, uh, could be really valuable to sort of the population at large. And uh, anybody who's got the, the the grip on that information or a stranglehold on that information and can decide what. Uh, uh, gets discussed, what gets released, what gets published, what doesn't. That, uh, to me, is uh, just uh, abhorrent to my ideas of, uh, of free inf- uh, the sharing of information. Yeah, so we're, we're advocating free access to this archive by serious scientists. Uh, we acknowledge, you know, that it's, it's not for the everyday person to post just like on the Internet, but right. for people that intend to publish in a journal. <clears throat> Uh, and uh, uh, th- this should be really an open process. Oh, and if yeah. uh, certain people don't uh, like a person's theory, well, they have they're free not to download it or not to read it. You know, right? And and and, and they're free to uh, to debate uh, against it in the public forum. You know, I mean that that that's the idea, I think, as opposed to not letting a not let it. Not letting it even be posted or um, or available for any discussion whatsoever. Now, just to give an example, in my own case, uh, I had a paper that for years I was trying to get posted, which was a prediction of the Pioneer effect. Ah, my theory had yeah, predicted yeah, it yeah, uh, yeah. 18 years before it was discovered. Okay, well, hold 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 on a second here because that's on my list too. Uh, a, a listener asked. Um, Dr. Paul, please explain the pioneer effect and the solution. So uh, this also ties into the tired light uh, idea that we talked about before. So right. we're slowly sort of working our way back to uh, cosmology and this sort of thing. So let's do that. Let's talk a little bit about the pioneer effect. Maybe you could take a minute, explain exactly what it is um, and uh, and how your theories actually predicted the effect uh, itself when it, when it actually did show itself. Okay, well, uh, I contacted JPL back in 1980, asked them, is it possible they've seen any blue shifting in their maser signals sent to the spacecraft? And that would mean that the signal, a blue shift uh, for the layman would mean that the signal has sped up. Has become higher frequency. Become higher frequency, okay. And uh, they use masers, these are microwave lasers, to communicate with the satellites, with the spacecraft, and uh, the beam, when it's received by the spacecraft, is transponded back to Earth. And by 
looking at the Doppler shift of the beam, mm-hmm. uh, they can determine how fast the spacecraft is moving. So they use this for tracking of the spacecraft. Right, so they so can determine velocity and position? Right, well, posi- distance from us. Okay, all right. Because they can figure how fast it's going, and therefore they know how far away it should be. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were puzzled as they kept watching this. This was years after I contacted them. Uh, they began to realize that there was this blue shifting of the signal, just like I had asked them about, right. but they didn't know it at that time. And uh, by that time, they had forgotten, actually, that I had called. <laughs> <laughs> and they ended up publishing this in 1998 in uh, one of the physics journals, calling attention to this anomaly, which right. they called the Pioneer Anomaly or something. Or the Pioneer Effect, yeah. And they interpreted it as a force pushing the spacecraft towards the sun uh, because if the frequency was higher frequency coming back, um, that could be interpreted as actually that the spacecraft had a velocity towards the Earth. So... uh, Actually, the Pioneer is leaving the Earth, so what they mean by blue shifting is their theory is that it's not leaving as fast as As they would have expected it. I understand. Okay. Some force pushing, Uh, whereas my theory uh, comes out of subquantum kinetics and predicts that photons in the galaxy should be blue shifting continually, that the energy is not conserved, that it becomes... Greater, higher frequency very slowly. Uh, we're talking about uh, oh, one part in 10 to the 15th change per second, mm-hmm. one part 10 to the 18th, something like that. Uh, so it's something you couldn't observe in the laboratory, but you would observe it over these long distances. Ah, so so is, is that why you originally had chosen Pioneer to begin with, just to, because it was a suitable uh, it was the only to way, test your right. theory? It was the only way to test the theory. Mm, okay, amazing. And uh, I was, uh, I'd read something in a newspaper, in the, one of the science magazines, that um, they had masers that were able to detect now these very small changes mm-hmm. that they were using for tracking satellites. That's why I'd call them up. Actually. Right, right, right. Uh, so when when I read this, uh, actually I contacted the lead scientist there and uh, sent him my book and uh, told him about the theory. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, he, I asked for his paper. He never sent it to me. And uh, I'd gotten sidetracked because I was working at the patent office at the time. Right. So I was busy uh, focusing on my work. And I didn't pay it any attention until they came out with their next paper four years later. And then I looked more carefully, and I realized that the result they were getting was exactly what I predicted. The amount of the blue shift was what I had predicted way back in 1980. And this was now 2002. So, um, unfortunately, even though they'd gotten my uh, book, uh, and I had actually marked the page where I described the, the experiment. I talked about having spacecraft in, in space and sending a signal mm-hmm. from one to the other and back, and that you see, see this blue shift of X amount. Uh, they didn't cite me at all in their paper, which I found a little disturbing. So I felt, well, I have to bring this to the attention of the scientific community, so I wrote up a paper. I submitted it to the journal, but while I was doing that, I sent it to... Uh, 
be posted on the physics archive. Right. Okay. This takes us back to the uh, to the archive at Cornell. And I was continually blocked. Hmm. Uh, I would you're supposed to get endorsed by somebody who's already posting papers, and so I, I actually got one after another three different people, and each time they they would they would not take any action. Hmm. And one of them was Hans Bethe, Nobel laureate, right. who's the fellow who. Uh, had the theory that nuclear energy runs stars. Um, so, and, uh, and you know, for for my listeners out there, get on the web and go to etheric.com and page down. Uh, and where the first time you see Paul Laviolette's name, and it'll have a blue line underneath it, which is a link to his bio. Go click on it and go read about this man's uh, history and his background and his education. And then uh, uh, use that as a framework, as a reference for the conversation that we're having right now when you hear about uh, the fact that he is, for whatever reason, being barred uh, from posting his, uh, his ideas, theories, etc. Uh, on this particular archive. All right, sorry, Paul, go ahead. Uh, well, the, the significance of this blue shifting, people might wonder what, what uh, is the significance of this. Well... It completely changes all of astronomy if you acknowledge this. Uh, for example, red dwarf stars, current theory is that they're burning uh, hydrogen, nuclear energy. Hmm. When you uh, accept the blue shifting effect, you realize that the energy is not coming from nuclear fusion, but it's coming from genic energies, what I call genic energies, hmm. uh, spontaneously created it's due to this blue shifting. In other words... Uh, if you take all the photons in a star, inside the star, and you assume that they're increasing their frequency, every second you will get an excess amount of energy being produced, and that will be radiated from the star. Now, is that something that's quantifiable from our own star? Um, in the case of the sun, uh, if you project now, you see the sun is on a different trend line than the red dwarfs. It's on what's called the upper main sequence instead of the lower main. Right, a different type of star, okay. And in the case of the sun, it's on the sequence where nuclear energy has kicked in. Hmm. See, so that's sort of like the next stage is nuclear energy uh, ignites. And in the case of the sun, you project, if you project up the, the uh, lower trend line, you see that uh, Genic predicts about 10% and the 90% would be nuclear, uh, which is consistent with the solar neutrino observations. So, so, in other words, the sun puts out X amount of energy, but it only should put out 90% of what it actually does. Uh, or 90, only 90% is nuclear. The okay. other 10% has to come from somewhere else. It's okay. coming from this genic. All right, but is, is, there, is, there a, is there a conventional or an orthodox uh, um, a description for where that additional 10% comes from? Um, well, there, there was what's called the solar neutrino deficit. So for a while they were concerned that uh, there weren't enough neutrinos coming from the sun and therefore that nuclear energy appeared to be less than they'd expected. But then they built some new telescopes and they found, well, that's not true. Uh, that there doesn't appear to be a deficit, hmm. although to within their measurements, uh, you, they cannot rule out a 10% contribution from something else. 
Okay. But the real proof is that uh, you find that um, Jupiter and Saturn put out heat also. And if you plot their masses and luminosities, how the amount of energy each of those planets is radiating, on a graph, along with these red dwarf stars, you find that they lie in the same trend line. And that can't be explained by current theories. Because current theories are saying the red dwarfs are run by nuclear energy. These heavy planets are due just to heat that they accumulated from their primordial formation, and therefore they're cooling off. Mm -hmm. But if that's the case, they shouldn't lie in the same trend line, right. and they do. Right, right. Uh, whereas genic energy, the blue-shifting theory, uh, predicts that they should. And in fact, that the Earth, the heat from the Earth, is also genic. It's also spontaneously generated. So that geothermal is actually an example of free energy. In other words, energy that's spontaneously being generated this moment. Hmm. And that it, it's not, the Earth is not going to cool off. It's right. going to have that perpetually. In right. The future. So, so, well, a couple of things that come to mind, but first off, it's that it's, that it's not uh, the sort of engine running down to a heat death. It's, it's more like a... Yeah. It ch changes your whole view of the universe, right. in fact. Well, it's, uh, it, it seems to me, Paul, almost almost like an organism. In other words, it's like me. Uh, like, in other words, it it uh, it's an open system, and this is one thing that you've written about extensively. Right, the and universe it, is an open system. Right, and so as long as there's inputs to that open system, it... Uh, I don't know. I mean, the be the best description, and I know this is you know total heresy in... Uh, in the scientific world, but it's a teleological uh, sort of look at things, that the universe, and this was a question that uh, sort of came up um, from a listener that I sent to you earlier, that a listener writes, is the universe seeking completion? Uh, is, is, is it a process with a beginning and an end? And, and that, to me, is a... Is a uh, sort of an attractive concept, actually, with the way that you describe it. It's a philosophical it. concept, and, uh, you know, we're on, uh, our time scale is so short here, it's difficult to answer that question, because mm. uh, uh, these processes, well, look, look at how far off the, the tracks modern astronomy is, to mm. think that there was a Big Bang. If, if you read my book, by the time you you read the end, get to the end of the book, you'll agree. If, if even if right. you're a big bang theorist, right, right. <laughs> um, and uh, well, you, and that's I mean, Paul, that's the thing, and, and and I keep stressing it, but I mean, we're talking to an empiricist on the phone here for the most part. We are talking about uh, 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 a scientist who's fully based in the rational. Uh, he's just a scientist that has release preconception and is taking him where the rational uh, search takes him. And that's uh, one of the major differences between you and from many other scientists that I run across, quite frankly. Uh, yeah, what, one, you know, I've, thought, I've tried to think of why is it me that's developing this? Why? Oh, oh, there are other people, too, that are developing new theories. But uh, uh, just to give you an insight in my own case, um, I tend not to get attached to views, particular views, hmm. uh, or belief systems, yeah. even religious belief systems. I'm, I'm spiritual, 
I believe in direct inner contact. In fact, uh, I'm, uh, the spiritual aspect uh, plays an important part in my life okay. and in my scientific work. Hmm. In fact, my view of the universe is that it's sacred. Hmm. It's part of the spiritual domain. So uh, my view on science is that it's, in effect, us learning more about the spiritual realm. Hmm. Sort of the way science was originally uh, thought of, you know, it's sort of, from from my history, you know, it seems like the current paradigm of science came out of the scholasticism of the Middle Ages with a, with a quite legitimate... Um, goal to sort of glorify God, quote-unquote, by an understanding of the natural world. Mm-hmm. But it but it sort of, uh, it, it, it became uh, a pact with the devil and uh, a descent into the underworld of sorts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it, religious doctrine uh, tended to crystallize or ossify science. Mm. Um, and today, science has done that to itself. Right. The Big Bang Theory can really be considered a religion, right. because when you send a paper to a journal that challenges it, they don't even want to review it in mm. many cases. I was fortunate to get a reasonably honest editor at Astrophysical Journal, uh, and that's why I was able to publish the paper. Uh, but this goes on, and it's uh, science is really you see that it's in a pretty much of a shambles. Mm. If you wonder why science doesn't move forward faster than it does, it's this kind of uh, cabal that controls things. Right, the, the, the hierarchy at the t- at, at the top that is, as you point out, I mean, it, and we've talked about this before, but it it's more uh, it's like a priesthood. It 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 has become. Uh, a religion of sorts, certain ideas that are just held on to, and of course there are reasons why they're held on to because there are there great uh, amounts of prestige and money and tenure and publications and all the stuff that are tied to it. Unfortunately, uh, and of course, there's the other extreme. There's the people that they get some idea in their head, and uh, it's of course uh, very thrilling to come up with a new idea and uh, gives a great feeling. Um, but if you don't question it and yeah. don't put it to the test right. and blind yourself that, well, the theory was not correct, because uh, that hurts. You know, yeah. when you spent a lot of time developing a theory and then it, it doesn't work out, it, it, it actually you feel physical pain. Right. Right. And a lot of people, they don't want to feel that pain, <laughs> and so they... Um, they refuse, they rationalize, they refuse to acknowledge that the theory is not good, and they keep developing it. Hmm. And as and, you say, they change things to make the data fit, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And you, you have to be able to self-criticize your work. Right. I, I've been off track several times, and uh, it was only by admitting that it was, the theory was wrong that then I saw the correct path, hmm. and you're able to go forward. Well, it's no, you know, it's no different than any uh, endeavor in life. You know, when you when you're on the right track, be happy and keep moving forward. When you're not, and you realize it, recognize it, and then uh, try to make a course correction, so to speak. You know. But uh, getting back to archive freedom, uh, so I, I you know, urge everyone to 
contact our congressman and hopefully uh, we can change the situation. Yes, and there are uh, there are a number of stories there. Uh, Dr. Pauls is one of uh, one of a bunch of them. Uh, Dr. Carlos Castro is another one who some of my listeners may be familiar with. I talked to him uh, last year. He has another very interesting story. I've had conversation uh, via email with Dr. Brian Josephson, who uh, who Paul mentions, who's a, a Nobel laureate. And uh, anyway, there these are these are serious serious people with uh, great achievement and accomplishment in their own pasts and uh, have good reason to be asking the questions and writing the papers that they're writing. And uh, there's no reason, at least none that I've come up with, uh, that uh, makes any sense to not allow them to do that. So I should say in my own case, finally, uh, they allowed me to post in the physics section. I had gotten uh, National Science Foundation calling them because huh. Ginsburg actually gets uh, money from National Science Foundation. <laughs> <laughs> Go figure. <laughs> uh but still, uh, I'm restricted to the physics section, hmm. and this particular paper belongs in uh, general relativity quantum cosmology section, which is where the Pioneer Effect is discussed. <laughs> and I've refused to post it until I'm allowed to Good. be uh, uh, posted there, right, where, which where? is unfortunate because now is the LISA project is coming up where they're going to put a laser interferometer up. And the, uh, the the scientists, there's a whole group of scientists at JPL and other universities scattered around the U.S. and other countries who are working on this project, and they had no idea of this blue shifting effect. Because <laughs> it would affect, it's going to affect their measurements. Right, right. And I had to really only through insistence to contact the people there uh, directly, you know, the head of the program said, well, why don't you just put your, write up a paper and stick it on archive, on the uh, Cornell archive. Hmm. And that's the problem. <laughs> uh, I w- would have liked to do that because I was <laughs> proposing they have to make Unreal. make allowance for this effect. Right. And they may even need to make sure that uh, physically their, their satellite can detect the, the blue shifting. Hmm. Um but to do this, you have to communicate to discuss the ideas with other scientists, right. and um, that that's only discussed on the uh, quantum cosmology section. Um, so I'm hoping to present directly to them in Washington, uh, so that you know, so I think the idea will still get to them, but it really is has been a lot more difficult. Oh yeah, than I- it should be. And these are projects that, for example, is funded by your taxpayer money. Mm. Yeah, and as you say, I mean, the, the ideas that you came up with the uh, the frequency shift were originally uh, discovered 25 years ago and have been presented a number of times to the establishment. Uh, and as, as just sort of a, a side note, anecdotally speaking, um, and, and I think you know of at least a couple occasions of this, but there have been at least two, and I want to say three, articles that have come out in Phys.org or New Scientist or you know some of the scientific uh, magazines on the web and in print over the last year or so that have that have uh, talked about the pioneer effect and what a big question mark it is. Well, in each one of those cases, I have. Uh, 
I've emailed the author of the article and uh, included reference and materials to uh, to your work, and not one time have I ever received a reply. Yeah. And and it's amazing because I mean uh, I'm I'm uh, certainly gracious enough and uh you know and treat them with respect and your work uh is not uh, the work of uh an amateur by any means i mean it it, it is uh certainly as high a caliber work as anything else that's out there so i was amazed uh that at this and then i thought well god the stuff that dr paul is going through is not uh uh it's not bs it's it, it's legitimate and it seems to be sort of widespread and, uh, you know, unfortunately, I don't have unlimited patience, <laughs> right. which is really required for such a thing. And, uh, you know, I will do a certain amount to get the idea out there the best I can. And, uh, you know, I can't, can't keep uh, pushing uh, on the wall, on a stone wall forever. Yeah, I mean, you have a life to live. You have uh, your your own concerns, so no question, no question about it. And uh, well, let, let let let's just finish up with Archive Freedom and mention the website uh, again, archivefreedom.org. Um, Paul, this idea of the Big Bang, uh, maybe this is maybe this is why there's such a resistance to your work on the pioneer problem. Is because doesn't am, am I correct in assuming that once you accept this blue shift uh, and this particular cosmology that you're talking about, then the Big Bang falls, right? Right. Uh, the where you would have blue shifting uh, within the galaxies, the same theory predicts red shifting outside the galaxies. Why is that? What's the difference between intergalactic space and uh, and, okay. and, and then within the galaxy. It has to do with gravity. Okay. So we're in a gravity well here in the galaxy. Uh, if you go outside the galaxy, you go into a gravity hill region. In other words, um, uh, if you think of a rubber sheet in you know, the idea of uh, mass uh, sort of creating wells in it. Uh, now, in this theory, this is something that's, not in standard physics, but it comes out of subquantum kinetics. Gravity um, affects the, the uh, conservation of energy, so that if gravity is very negative, you have blue shifting going on. Okay. And the opposite, if it's very positive, mm. potential is very positive, you have red shifting. Uh, it's not arbitrary at all. It's actually you can simulate on the computer. You put the equations in the computer and predict the same thing. Think of a nuclear reactor because you're dealing with a nonlinear system. Okay. And that the, the reactor is supercritical or space. Think of space is supercritical inside the galaxy and it's subcritical outside the galaxy. Okay. And so the the basic concepts are right out of nuclear physics. Um, and so the redshifting as is an alternative to the idea of expansion. Mm -hmm. So what so what does that tell us about about the nature of 
galaxies and the I, I, w- I won't be as uh, I won't even go so far as to say the universe but but as far as you know our little corner of it what we know with regard to creation and the way that th- you know that things come about in other words the big bang sort of says that everything just for no reason whatsoever really you know, the big bang has the violation of energy conservation occur all at once right. <laughs> in a big way right 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 uh, whereas uh, in in this cosmology it's much more you're dealing with much more modest uh, creation uh, one uh, one atom at a time sort of or one throughout the universe yeah that you have the possibility of particles materializing mm. and the theory explains how this occurs, it comes out of the zero-point energy, as it's called, the fluctuations that are going on even in empty space. Mm-hmm. And every now and then you get a fluctuation that's large enough that creates a seed out of which a particle can form. Mm. And then the reactions, the, the matter creation rate, this is like continual creation cosmology. Right, that's the idea, continuous creation. The matter creation rate goes on uh, the fastest rate inside uh, the the mass at the center, the core, at the center of the galaxy, or at the center of each galaxy, because again it depends on the gravity potential. That you have a very deep gravity well there, so you have very supercritical regions. So not only you have a lot of ma- energy being created, but matter also. Mm. So actually, most of the matter in our galaxy is being created at the center, as it turns out. Okay, so. So we've uh, so we've come, so we've come full cir- we've come full circle though we're back at the center we're back at the at the galactic core and, uh, n- and right this uh, puts a whole new view on these core explosions what are core explosions right what are they I mean they are the big bangs so to speak <laughs> in other words there's not one big bang it's many Big Bangs right. going on in the centers of galaxies, and it's the process of creation. So the Big Bang theorists got that right, that there, is, there are explosive events that are creative, uh, but they got the location wrong and the timing wrong. <laughs> uh, you know, maybe there is a, an intuitive aspect that leads people, but um, they got just got down the wrong path, the way I see it. Hmm. Uh, and and so this is uh, the birth pang, birth pangs of 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 the universe, of the galaxy in this case, of our own galaxy. Uh, just goes through periods where the creation process gets out of hand; it gets uh, too supercritical, and you have an explosive outburst that uh, blows a lot of matter out from that region. Mm. And once that matter is cleared out, the gravity potential. Reduced, comes back to right. more normal right. levels, right. And, and so the process subsides. Right, and, and, and as always, you have creation and destruction sort of in the same breath. Yeah, and it's a cyclical phenomenon because the process is always going on, and you'll build up again matter mm-hmm. at the center, and it will again explode. All right, okay, so let's... Um Let's move just a little bit further. We've we've uh, I've, I've had you longer than I ever expected to, uh, so I'm going to ask you a couple more questions about um, your book, Talk of the Galaxy, because that's one that I've that, that I've been involved in uh, just recently. I just finished it on Saturday, 
And it's the second time I read it, but as I mentioned to you off the air, it really struck me uh, the second time more than the first time because I'm more familiar with your other theories, and this sort of uh, uh, involves them. But uh, to make a long story short, uh, pulsars, this particular sort of stellar um, phenomena that we see, you have, a t- uh, you have an idea about them and what they are. Uh, l- l- let's talk really quickly about what that idea is um, and go from there. And we've also already began speaking about the radian uh, markers, so we'll, we'll, we'll definitely touch on that as well, of course. Okay. Uh, I believe pulsars are artificial beacons. They're of extraterrestrial intelligence origin. And uh, you conclude that from a number of things. First, they're the most complex phenomenon known to astronomers. Uh, they they humble astronomers. <laughs> they're they're huh. so complex. In fact, the, the the people that are working on them admit you actually will. I have in my book quoted some passages where they admit that there is no real theory that they. Can can come up with to explain what they're seeing. Mm. Um, and you and can think of uh, complex computers out there spitting out information that's close to the idea. Uh, I spend uh, I have a whole chapter where I talk about the complexity of the signals. First of all, it's the most okay. For example, we do see pulsating phenomena out there, like pulsating stars. But these are rather erratic, like if you study the period of the star, it's going to vary over time. Pulsars, if you study that, um, they are highly precise to 15 decimal places or more. Uh, and their, their uh, profile, what are they? Okay, so the question is, what are they? They're, um, what we see are broadband radio signals. They, they, they're not discrete signals like TV stations. They, they spread this over the whole spectrum. So we pick them up with radio telescopes. So no matter what frequency our telescope was tuned to, it would see these, uh, which is convenient. That's one thing you'd want to do if you were sending out signals and you wanted to, your source to be seen. Um, now uh they uh, they accumulate many pulses to build up what's called a pulse profile so if astronomers plot the pulsar's profile in other words how the radio intensity varies with time because okay first of all the period of these things can go from just a little over one thousandth of a second up to 11 seconds. Which which means they're spinning very, very fast. Well, that's the standard model, that there's a star spinning that causes this pulsation. Ah, okay, so this is the lighthouse model that we're that's talking about. That's the lighthouse about. model that was proposed. Actually, when they first discovered the first pulsar, they thought they discovered extraterrestrial communication. Right, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, I mean it, it, sort of meets, uh, it sort of meets all the criteria, as you said earlier, about what we would look for or what we would expect uh, to find if we were looking for something that was artificial. It has all of those signals, but then it just sort of got, <laughs> as always, it's sort of like, uh, be careful what you wish for, and then 
then the paradigm kicks in and says, oh, my gosh, we can't accept that particular possibility. Now we have to try to explain it away. Well, already, uh, this occurred in the, the 60s. Already there was the program to discredit UFO observers and so on. So scientists were very hesitant to come out and say they discovered something like this that was uh, of extraterrestrial origin. Right. And then they found uh, three, three more, and then uh, these were in different parts of the galaxy. So at that time, they thought it unlikely that once civilization would be broadcasting from so many places, they'd never thought the idea of a galactic civilization, a, a community, let's say galactic community. Right, with sort of a communications uh, network or something like that. Right. And so somebody suggested this lighthouse model. Mm. And originally they had the idea of a pulsating star, radially pulsating. Uh, but then that couldn't explain what they were seeing, but then they came up with the idea of the neutron star that it w would be spinning, causing us. And I show in the book uh, reasons why that has difficulty. Yeah, just to to uh, uh, to make it short, it's a it's a way over super simplification. Right. Uh, there is they are people. If, if you're interested in in the details, get uh, uh, talk of the galaxy, and it's available at etheric.com and at one eight hundred. Uh, let's see, what's that number? 715-9993. Um, but, okay, so, so, the, so the pulsar is a very, very strange bird up there. So the question is, what is it if it's not a spinning neutron star? Okay, what, what, what your idea is? What I'm proposing is there is a neutron star there that's radiating cosmic rays. Or in some cases, it might be a white dwarf uh, or a uh, X-ray star. It's, the important thing is it's a, a source of cosmic rays, cosmic ray electrons. And what the civilization has done is project a force field disk to the surface of the star and energize the disk so that it uh, decelerates the cosmic rays that come off the star. And what that does is it causes them to radiate radio emission mm. called synchrotron radiation. Synchrotron radiation. And that would be beamed, would form a beam. So, in other words, these beams, there are beams, but they're not spinning. They're stationary beams. And the ones that we're seeing, the pulsars we see, uh, are beams that are directed towards us, towards our part of the uh, galaxy. Hmm. And they are flashed on and off. They are um, modulated uh, electronically. And uh, with the proper electronics, they can create these very complex patterns. Um, they're, they're, if you think of a TV picture being built up from scans, from the scans across the screen, mm -hmm. that sort of describes what a pulsar is. Hmm. Uh, the profile that's the very constant part of the pulsar is built up from hundreds or thousands of individual pulses, pulses that are received. Right. The pulses themselves vary around, uh, but the, the the overall picture is very constant. Uh, you can't explain that with a spinning neutron star. Mm. It, it, that is an indication of intelligence when you get that type of thing happening. And... Uh, 
and and from from my reading, it appears that the closer you look at these things, the more deeply embedded the the order seems to be. In other words, it's a highly ordered system, but the closer you look at it, uh, there are pulses, um, smaller pulses in between larger ones, etc., that are all also highly regular and very difficult to... Uh, right, they call it subpulses, the subpulse modulation. Uh, at different phases in the pulse profile, you'll have oscillations of pulses, you'll have drifting of the pulses, You'll have mode switching where the whole character of the pulsar suddenly changes. Right, right. The actual pulse profile becomes entirely different. And then shifts back. And then will suddenly shift back. There's some that have actually five modes. Each mode has a totally different pulse profile. Hmm. And it will flip from one to the other. Some have actual logic that will go from one state to the next in a certain order, but it will go never in the reverse. Some cases they'll shut off entirely. They'll, they'll go dark. You won't see them. Really? Suddenly pop up and they'll leave off where they were before. <laughs> huh. okay. It's almost like a tape recorder. Wow. All right. So, so there are there are lots and lots of reasons why these things are really uh, extraordinary. Yeah. Now, and I detail this in the book. Yes. But yes. the the um, to really uh, takes a lot of careful reading to piece all these things together, but the part that's the, probably the most convincing and easiest to understand is the locations of mm. certain of these pulsars, the most unusual, are located in key spots in the sky. Yes, okay, and, and this takes us again back to what we spoke about a little bit earlier in the program, this idea of the radian. Let's, uh, let, let's clarify that again for everyone. Okay, the, the galactic one radian point, which is one radian from the galactic center, from our vantage point looking there. As if we were the center. In other words, a galactic longitude 57.24 degrees approximately. Okay. And you find that of all the pulses, there's 15, more than 1,500 that we've detected in the sky. And if you grade their rate of pulsation, you take the fastest pulsing pulsar in the sky. Where, where does it happen to be? It right ends up the... being closest pulsar to this one radian point. It's only uh, four tenths of a degree from there. And that's on the uh, again from our viewpoint. There, if we're looking at the galactic center, there would be a radian point on either side of it, correct? Right. And this is at the one. It's where the arrow is. Okay, so this is where Sagitta is. Sagitta, right? Uh, except Sagitta is a little off of the plane, but this is right on the. Uh, very close to the equator, okay. and it's only a quarter of a degree of longitude from that one radian point, and in terms of direct uh, arc, is four tenths of a degree. What, is, what does that mean to you as an uh, as a as a physicist it's, as far as accuracy? Oh, it's incredible. Okay. Uh, in terms of what is the chance that the most the fastest huh. pulsing pulsar would lie in that position, as it had all these unusual characteristics, not only the fastest pulsing right. pulsar, but it's also one of only five pulsars, five or six, that put out optical flashes. Um, Which, of course, is a universal sign for sort of look over here. Right. Or at least on this planet it is. Because the majority of the 1,530 uh, pulsars that they observe are radio pulsars. 
So this small set are putting out optical flashes, including the Vela and Crab pulsars, which the other two unusually placed pulsars, they mark the closest supernova remnants to us that were detonated by the last superwave. And again, in the book, there's evidence of that, that, the, that, that those particular supernovas in the Crab Nebula and, uh, and Vela were actually uh, supernovas that occurred because of the uh, impact of, the, uh, of, of a recent superwave that emanated from the galactic core. Right. So you realize that uh, they're trying to call our attention to this past event, and it's something that would have affected all life in the galaxy, and it's a natural thing to communicate if you're going to be discussing something with another civilization. If you just uh, talk about where we are located on Earth like we did on our space black, some galactic civilization will suddenly realize, well, these people know nothing about galactic superwaves, or at least they would have mentioned something on the mm. space plaque, which is the most important phenomenon that affects all civilizations. Right, so, right. so, so it's, it's something that, regardless of your civilization, it's something that all civilizations in the galaxy have in common, because they've all experienced in the past this, uh, this superwave. And here I will disclose that actually deciphering, realizing about the these two supernova remnants that were marked by these pulsars was part of, it was an important step in my realizing about the superwave theory. <sighs> because uh, on the one hand, I had mentioned earlier, I had discovered the marking of the date that the galactic core had exploded using the, uh, the zodiac constellations, right, the arrow right, sighting. Right, right. But when you, when you first understand that, you don't immediately get the idea of a wave moving out, you see. <clears throat> you, you see that something is marked in the sky, but you don't get the 3D effect of this thing coming at you. Hmm. But then when I saw these two supernova remnants were marked in such an unusual fashion with these flashing beacons, one is the brightest pulsar in the sky, that's the... Uh, the uh, let's see, either the villa or the crab. I'm, I think it's the Bella, the brightest, and the crab pulsar is the most luminous of all. Right, right. And for those, I call them the king and queen of the pulsars. To be marking these two supernova remnants, it really calls your attention, and uh, that's what got me to look at their dates of their explosions and realize, hey. These were sequentially triggered by a an event that moved at the speed of light away from the galactic center. And that's when I realized it was a it was this uh, cosmic ray front with possible gravity wave component. Right, and there's uh, even imagery that shows the bow shock of it uh, moving through those uh, one of one of those nebula at least. Yeah. So. Uh, wow. Okay. Well, look. So we've got. So it's possible that there that and and again that's where the name of the book comes from. It's the talk of the galaxy. Of course, that's what everyone would be talking about. And now they are changing the title. Uh, it's being uh, reprinted in a new edition under a different title, so people will be aware of that. Uh, that will be coming out probably in May. Uh, it's called "Decoding the Message of the Pulsars," and uh, it'll be. Essentially the same as Talk of the Galaxy, but updated 
Right, there's some new information in there. And I have some of that on my website, some of the new findings. Wow. Okay. Well, Paul, we are uh, we've 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 uh, kept you on the line an hour longer than we expected to because we had sort of a late start, but I cannot tell you how much I appreciate it. The time goes really quickly. Um, yeah. It's nearly three o'clock your time, and uh, boy, this is one that uh, I can't wait to get uh, off the. Uh, digital computer here and uh, get it up on the archives and on the web so other people can uh, can listen as well and we can share it with other people because as, as I expected, it's just been fascinating and uh, important, really astonishing and relevant information. So And also mention there's a, a video, too, of Talk of the Galaxy. That's oh, I didn't, I didn't realize that. That was my presentation to the American Astronomical Society where I announced these findings. Huh. And discussed with some astronomers in the exhibit hall. I love it. What uh, what's outside? You haven't of, seen it? I, I can send you a copy. I would certainly love to see it. And and let me ask you a question. Um, outside of the, you know the uh, uh, the the public uh, eye or whatever, what sort of response do you get from uh, from other scientists like yourselves when you show them the data? I mean, that's what it comes down to. You show them the data and say, hey, look. Yeah, that's on this video because I'm uh, pulling over people. Actually, half of the astronomers weren't interested in extraterrestrial communication, <laughs> so you had to rule those out. Right. I guess they were just interested sitting in front of uh, TV screens processing data but weren't really interested in these big questions. And then the other half, was about two-thirds of them, were interested to come over and take a look and were open-minded enough to take a look at the evidence because once, once you... See the evidence. I mean, because this is—it's not like a UFO sighting that it's gone and there was—you know—you have to depend on people's reports. This is stuff that's been cataloged, and uh, there's no question that it exists. Right, and it's still there, and it's—it's—it's it's, it's constantly available for verification. And and you just look at some of these, like there's the pi relationship is is shown between the two fastest pulsars. Is both the uh, there's a pi relationship, there's a two pi relationship. There's things encoded in the periods of the two fast, uh, fastest pulsars. Hey, uh, you know, since we we got a quick minute here left, there, there was a, a question uh, that I had actually regarding uh, that particular pulsar that's called the EBM, or so so designated, the EBM pulsar. Lipsine binary millisecond pulsar. Yes. Uh, this is the second fastest pulsar so, in the sky. And its period is uh, 1.6. Oh, I forget exactly the measurement or whatever, but I yeah. but, but I I was immediately thinking about the golden mean. Does that have anything to do with this, or is that just? Uh, well, that's milliseconds now. So you, if if they had if there was some significance for the millisecond, you know, but we don't have a. Guarantee that right. It's hard to say what the uh, know, other civilization are using would, at the same uh, time thinking that way. I see. I see. All yeah, right. I, I've come up with a lot of questions like that, and then you end up saying, "Well, that's sort of based on our frame of reference." Yeah, yeah our, just an idea, and right. doesn't seem to could really be something we pay attention to uh, seriously. But some of these other things do catch you. Yeah, I mean, and and, and as you've shown, they're measurable. Yeah. So. All right. Well, we have interesting times for sure. The, the 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 galactic core. The last time it exploded was 
What, what's your best guess? Uh, well, the small explosion was about 700 years ago. And there was small a... outburst or burp or whatever you want to call it. Right. And uh, a major, the last major one was about 12,000 years ago. So between 11,000 and 16,000 years ago. Okay. All right. Well, we'll uh, keep our eyes on the skies and uh, uh, keep trying to learn about this stuff. The gamma ray bursts uh, are just fascinating to me, and and the and more and more uh, scientists, other than yourself, are recognizing the connection between these uh, uh, greater cosmic events and events here on Earth. I read a story just yesterday about um, cosmic rays influencing. Uh, uh, the atmosphere and, and, and the likelihood of cloudy days, believe it or not. So uh, the stuff is uh, slowly making it into the mainstream, but uh, uh, your ideas are well ahead of the pack as they have been for 30 years now. So Thank you, Mike. Paul, I can't tell you. Thank you very much. Fascinating stuff. And uh, we'll uh, continue our, uh, our correspondence, and, and I'm sure we'll have some questions that arise from this particular uh, show and I'll forward them to you and we'll make everything available online as we always do, okay? Okay. Alright, hey, I'll be in touch and uh, as always, Paul, thanks again and I'll give out uh, the information for Dr. LaViolette's uh, website one more time here. Uh, you can get everything that we've talked about tonight at www.etheric.com and uh, also make sure you check out archivefreedom.org and you can always access Dr. Paul's material and websites from my website as well. So, uh, uh, well, here we are. Thank you, Dr. Paul, one last time, and uh, take great care of yourself, all right? Okay, thank you. Thanks. Thank you. All right, everybody, there you have it. Dr. Paul LaViolette, and uh, a great thank you to him for staying up until 3 o'clock in the morning on the East Coast to uh, share his amazing information with us. I'll be back next week with John Major Jenkins. We'll talk about the Mayan calendar and what might be coming up in the year 2012. We'll finish things off here with a little bit of music. This is Robert Cardi from a few weeks ago. The song is called Infinite Waves. And it uh, goes out to my friend Tim, who passed away and moved to the other side on Friday, and also to my friend Dr. Paul LaViolette. I'll be back next week. This is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit.